Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is sponsored in part by Boyd Group International's 25th Annual International Aviation Forecast Summit this August in Cincinnati. The only aviation forecast event. Register to attend at a reduced rate with a special promo code available only at airlinesconfidential.com. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is also available at airlinesconfidential.com. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net. When you Google Baldanza, he's not even the first thing that comes up, at least not for me. He's Ben Baldanza, the former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. Ben, I get Bistro Baldanza in New Canaan, Connecticut. <laughs> Probably some distant relatives. It looks That's good, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Restaurant. Four stars. Well, rumor has it that when working in Florida, he would cross eight lanes of traffic on very busy and dangerous I-95 to get where? To Dunkin' Donuts. He's Seth Kaplan, NPR's transportation here and now analyst. Could that be true, Seth? I love Dunkin' Donuts, but like Krispy Kreme <laughs> even better. Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. Uh, today, we talk about some reasons for hope and some reasons for caution. And we'll talk about whose fault it is that you lost that little paper the immigration officer gives you and tells you to hold on to in some countries. Could that really be your fault? We'll see. But first, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Ben, as I said, reasons for optimism and reasons for pessimism. Let's get the bad news out of the way first, the very bad news. You'll recall several weeks ago, United Airlines came under all kinds of criticism for saying it would shrink its staff by maybe 30% come October 1st, just weeks after it accepted all that federal money in exchange for no involuntary job losses through September 30th. But you'll also recall nobody thought United would be the only airline to make an announcement like that. There was no reason to think that it was in a vastly different situation than American and Delta, especially. Well, sure enough, American and Delta have outlined similar plans, trying to get there first with voluntary buyout packages like United and then resorting to layoffs if they can't hit their numbers voluntarily. Uh, looking at the packages, they, they're doing it very differently. Gary Leff of the View from the Wing blog was the first one to get the leak of the American packages. So they're offering two different packages, and it doesn't seem to depend on how long you've been there. But there's one package that optimizes for getting more money. So they're going to give a third of pay for six months through the end of the year for people who leave soon, like in mid-June. Then they get health coverage at the active employee rates for six months and they get to they get employee travel benefits well retiree anyway benefits for uh for five years or if they take less pay just three months of a third of their pay then they can keep the employee health benefits for almost two years and they get to keep the travel benefits uh, for 10 years so all of that is, as Gary described it, the carrot. The stick is, if you don't take any of that and you get laid off anyway, and again, they've, they've said already 30% of people have to be gone, uh, then you get a lot less. You get one year of travel and you get less health coverage and, and all the rest of it. So we're trying to get people to do it voluntarily. What a tough choice to try to, you know, if you're somebody who, who absolutely doesn't want to leave, to, to try to bet whether you're going to be gone anyway and you're better off taking that. Obviously, that's what they're trying to do. Delta... Uh, do we get a little more traditionally, according to C CNBC, kind of depends on how many years you've been there. Now, that's typical, right? A certain number of weeks pay for every year you've worked four to 20 weeks. 
severance, a year of paid health, a year of travel benefits, or for people who are eligible for early retirement. So I guess that's people who work there longer. Uh, they could get up to half a year of full pay, uh, two years of health benefits, and a year of travel. And again, you know, Delta too might end up resorting to layoffs or to people who go involuntarily would get less than the people who go voluntarily. Ben, obviously a tough pill to swallow for employees at uh, at airlines that we're talking. I mean, look, Doug Parker, the head of American, just said last year that he, he hoped his legacy, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically would be that people now got to work at an airline where they didn't have to think about things like this, about whether their jobs would be there. And yet here we are. Yeah, it's a t- tough situation for sure. And Voluntary buyouts are not a new thing in the industry. They've been used for many, many years for different reasons. In this case, clearly the industry is looking at an October 1 date when the CARES Act money that today is subsidizing employees in the airline industry ends. And they're saying, well, we don't know how big our airline is going to be at that point. We don't know how many people we're going to need. So we're going to have to think about it. So thinking about an early out is a nice thing to do for employees, even though it's a difficult thing. I was actually encouraged by these, Seth, that they include some time with health benefits continued, especially sort of in the environment we're in now that people can, you know, have a couple of years to know that their health coverage is covered while they're maybe looking for something else or figuring out what their next step is. That's kind of nice. Yeah. And and, and in the U.S., for I mean, for people around the world who aren't familiar, I mean, that is such a big deal because of the lack of universal. I mean, you have Obamacare now where you have people who have access. Everybody has access to some kind of health coverage, but it can be very expensive and very limited. And so that's... That's sort of a, a disincentive to entrepreneurialism, right? There are people who would go out and start a company, take all kinds of other risks if they didn't have to worry about losing their health insurance, and they stick with jobs because of that. So at least uh, these people have that for some period of time. That's right. And the other thing, and this is a little less comfortable to say, but it's economics and it's business, is that if you're going to have fewer people in your company, ideally, you don't want just a random set to leave. Right. You want to you want to you want to keep the most productive people. You want to keep, you know, ideally the healthiest people. Right. You want to keep the people who are going to make the airline the strongest. And one of the challenges with these early outs is that sometimes some of your best people say, you know, I've got other options. I I was going to take this. I was going to. This is what I was going to ask you, Ben. Right. This is what I was going to ask you is that somebody who's the most confident that they can be okay on the outside. Aren't they the most likely to go? And aren't they also, in some cases, the people who you don't want to have leave? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And so, you know, the people who have the best options will say, you know, I'll take this couple year of flight benefits and uh, and health benefits and six months pay and I'll be in another job in three months. Now, maybe in today's economy, nobody's that confident, right? right? But, but clearly, you have what's you know, insurers call that adverse selection, where yeah. exactly the people you don't want to take the product takes the product, right? Yeah. And so, so to some extent, you know, I, I actually wonder in all three cases, American United Delta, if you know, for a few select few, they're going up to them and saying, "Look, we really hope you don't take this buyout." <laughs> yeah, and and you know, we'll 
we know we're telling you right now that you're not going to be the ones let go. And we know you're here for the future. And they're probably putting their arms around a few people and saying that because they don't want some of those people to take this. But all else, you know, in a, in a negative situation like this, where there's going to be less airline employment, fewer employees in the industry, doing it with an early out with some incentive around it is clearly better than just saying on October 1, you're out of a job. Absolutely. And I should mention those packages, that's for management and support personnel, especially in the case of American, a mostly unionized airline. It'll it'll work out with the unions, how that's going to work. Delta, in its case, has to negotiate with the pilots. Most other employees are not unionized. But you know, obviously, these airlines, the point is that they're going to be smaller and they would, they would just be too hot, top heavy if they if they didn't have as many rank and file people flying airplanes and fixing airplanes and all the rest of that, but had all the same management staff as before. Sad news. Uh, now for the more hopeful news uh, and and wondering if, if maybe there are some airlines that aren't going to be so much smaller than they were before too long. We talked two weeks ago on this show about how Allegiant had quietly become the first airline to cross the 50% mark and start flying more than half of its pre-COVID schedule, according to Sirium data. Uh, now we see Frontier announcing 18 new routes, a bunch of cities up north and also places like Dallas to places like Tampa, Sarasota, West Palm Beach, and Miami and Florida, a couple routes to Myrtle Beach. I do recognize one or two of those as routes that flew in the past. I Islip, West Palm, I saw on there. I'm almost certain they, they did that in the past. Uh, we also have Southwest announcing 11 new routes. Uh, in November, I think I saw like Orange County to Nashville, something like that, with plans to fly something resembling its full pre-COVID schedule by the end of this year, Ben. Mm-hmm. The end of 2020, not 2023 and some of the times that we've been talking about. Now, Southwest told the points guy, quote, in past downturns, we've been able to capture substantial demand uh, after the downturn. We expect no different this time, Ben. This is interesting, and and this comes amid some other what you might call green shoots, to use the pukey cliche for for <laughs> for lack of a better of a better word. Uh, other signs of hope, even for other airlines. But first of all, is is this all an oxymoron? Is it a contradiction in terms? On one hand, us talking about. Delta, American, United uh, shrinking dramatically, at least in terms of their workforces, but quite clearly their their flight schedules as well. And Frontier and Southwest giving us these more hopeful signs. Or does that all make perfect sense for some other reason, either because it's apples to oranges. We're not talking employment here. We're talking schedules or because of just different exposure that these two airlines have compared to their global peers. Well, Seth, it's an interesting thing, and if I can go off uh, close to t- off topic for a minute, you know, you know that I like board games as a hobby. Right? Yeah, you love them. And and back in the nineteen nineties, there was a game that was published. I'm sure you can still find it on eBay and such. Called Air Baron, and Air Baron's an airline game, so it's related, of course. But one of the interesting things about that game is that each round of the game, you have to declare whether your airline company is going to be in a fair war or not. And when you're in a fair war, you are not allowed to make any money that round. 
but it makes it easier for you to get more gates at Chicago and more gates at LA and things like that. And otherwise you could say, I'm not in fair wars and you can actually make money and you win the game by having the most money, but going into fair wars at the appropriate times allows you to build your network more. And when I saw Southwest's announcement here and I saw that statement that we expect no difference this time, I immediately thought of that game. And I said, they're, they're picking the fair wars option for this round because what they see is there's no way that they think that there's going to be full demand again by December. No one can realistically think that. And I don't think there's anyone in the airline business that's thinking demand is going to come back that strong that quickly. I think everybody believes it's going to come back eventually, but not by this fall. Now their whole schedule could be now, if they were flying, and I'm making this number up because I don't know their exact schedule, but if they were flying 25 times a day between Dallas and Houston, and in December they're flying 10 times a day, is that still their full schedule because they're flying between Dallas and Houston? Under that sort of case, then maybe they're right, that they're flying all serving all the origin destination points or all the nonstop flight segments that they used to fly, they're flying, but maybe with significantly less frequency and significantly less connectivity and such. That might make some sense. But to say that there's no difference this time is I think just um, a bit head in the sandish, if you will. Uh, the industry has not seen a situation like this in a time that anybody working in the industry has been in the industry. Yeah. So to think that, that by the end of the year it works. Now on the other hand, Southwest may be saying, look, I've got pretty low costs, customers love me, And so I'm going to be out there with my capacity first to win those travelers. And maybe I'm not going to make any money this year, but by putting all that capacity out, that's going to ensure that fares stay low because what one thing airlines are good at is pricing low when there's too many seats out there. Right. And Southwest will just say, you know, I've got a big balance sheet. I've got a beloved brand. I'm going to come out of this stronger than I was before. And if I was 20% of the industry before, now I'm going to be 22% of the industry or whatever the numbers are. That's clearly what they're thinking. Yeah. And look, they are nearly an all domestic airline. They have a little bit of international service, but nearly all domestic with disproportionate exposure to heartland markets, to, to the middle of the country where, where things just don't seem to be as bad, at least the perception is. And then and, and the reality, I mean, it just if you look at where the deaths are, they're not mostly uh, in the big Southwest markets, right? They're, they're mostly in places like New York, where Southwest is, is relatively small. And, and it's exactly what you said, Ben, you know, I, I, I don't think I got to, I don't think I'd realized this yet when we did the Allegiant piece on the podcast, but I did some more math regarding Allegiant. And by them restoring as much service as they did, this also according to Sirium data, they grew from like 1.5% of domestic industry ASMs, available seat miles in the U.S., to 4.3% by, by – it was a week I ran like like a week ago, okay? Just by growing back. And again, they're a lot smaller than they were before. Everybody is. But everybody else had cut so much more, and they grew back first. And there were airports – Ben, do you know what the biggest airline at Cincinnati is today? It's not – it's got to be Delta, right? No, it's Allegiant, and it's not Allegiant. even close. It's Allegiant wow. right now. Yeah, now Delta might again be bigger, but that's that's the wildest one I found. But then there are lots of other, you know, Savannah, 
lots of other airports where that's the case because they restored service first. And, okay. and, and so so that that blew me away, uh, Cincinnati. But yeah, it was it was I ran into I think Delta cut like, I don't know, 88 percent of their of their capacity there compared to a year ago. I was looking at the, like the last week in May, whereas Allegiant uh, that cut a lot was already back to well more than you know it was, it was maybe doing two thirds of what it had been done in, doing uh, previously. So you see all these places where that share is shifting onto Allegiant. Now Allegiant has even more flexibility than anybody else. It's just a it, it is a variable cost airline. I mean, they're just it was an airline in some ways built for this, including all that exposure to the heartland markets. Obviously, it's not that they predicted this. It's just that's the way the airline was built, and and uh, and that was a good place to be right now. But so if you think about it, Southwest, I mean, structured differently from Allegiant in a lot of ways, not just the fact that the product is, couldn't be more different in terms of highly bundled versus highly unbundled and all the rest <laughs> of it. But again, base Allegiant is an all-domestic airline. Southwest is a nearly all-domestic airline. And and with that Heartland exposure, we should mention, I think you mentioned this last time, Allegiant, because of the CARES Act, probably some more requirements because they're an infrequent airline and you have to keep serving most of the airports where you were some bias towards since them. they're the only player at a lot of airports right, right exactly <laughs> the only player at a lot of airports and, and if you're already only doing a little bit you know you can't slash what you're doing at some of these places where you have infrequent service quite as much but you that, can't that, strand those people in elmira new york right exactly and plattsburgh <laughs> and all the rest of it but that said i mean there's no question even when you control for that clearly they are flying more than just sort of the minimum that they have to fly. So yeah, all kinds of interesting things. And clearly there are airlines thinking in those terms. And 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 I guess this is a very simple thing to say, but a good starting point is when most of your network is at least flying where people aren't prohibited from doing it, right? <laughs> where like trips that people are allowed to take because they're domestic trips and because they don't involve a, a closed border. That's a good place to start. And then when beyond that, again, more sort of middle of the country exposure than coastal exposure, not a lot of premium exposure. Uh, in Allegiance case, not a lot of corporate travel exposure. Southwest has more of that, uh, a fair amount of corporate travel. Some people don't realize, but Southwest is an important business travel airline in, in, in the U.S. But uh, clearly, again, yeah, that balance sheet, like you said, gives them some confidence. So this is going to be interesting. Well, and you know, Seth, that uh, that phrase that Rahm Emanuel made so popular, never let a crisis go to waste, yeah. um, is clearly true in the sense of the fact that airlines that are better positioned or make better decisions through this under demand time can emerge stronger than they were. And the industry will look different, not only in terms of the way people interact at the airport or on the airplane, but the relative competitive basis. And Southwest and Allegiant have both taken very aggressive stance to say, we're, we're going to be winners in this space and we're going to be out there first. It's a real interesting uh, positioning they're both taking. Yeah, well, now a cruise altitude here as an airline's confidential. Uh, breaking news, Ben, it is time for passengers behaving badly. And today's passenger, who behaved very badly, was not flying Spirit. Oh, good for them this no. time. No. <laughs> Gavin Caps, who lives near Manchester in England, was flying EasyJet from Manchester to Reykjavik to work as a fishing trawler. Uh, but it seems he was already acting like a drunken sailor on the flight there. He had already drunk three cans of beer. It was Heineken, if you're wondering, according to what okay. I have to say is a very detailed account in the Manchester Evening News when he walked in front of the cabin to get something more to drink. 
still thirsty. And by the way, it's not too long a flight from England to Iceland. Uh, you had to be drinking quickly. Anyway, the flight attendants asked him to sit, say they'd, they'd be around soon with the cart. Uh, when they brought out the duty-free cart, he helped himself to two cartons of cigarettes without paying for them. A male flight attendant tried to defuse the situation when Caps, uh, according to the report, pinched that man's behind and called him a, quote, gay boy. And, and then it got uglier. You could read all about it if you want to. I'm kind of sorry I did. Caps was arrested when he returned to England. His defense lawyer in court acknowledged that he had behaved badly but argued that the shame of hearing his name read on Airlines Confidential should be punishment <laughs> enough. No, that's not what she said. She said having to register as a sex offender should be punishment enough, but a judge sentenced him to six months in prison. Well, he deserves that six months, but it certainly gives a new meaning to the term easy jet, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. Can you imagine? Oh, flight what a attendance. I mean, it's a hard enough job to begin with, you know, and then they have to deal with stuff like this. Well, and, you know, alcohol and airplanes don't mix, just like alcohol and a lot of things don't mix. Yeah. And people just act so ridiculous and so silly and and it's just, it's just crazy. And it's unfortunate that airline employees have to bear the brunt of this. Sounds like this crew sort of handled it well yeah. and, did, and did everything they could. But boy, they're going to be telling this story for a while, too. That's for sure. Well, would American Airlines be in better shape today if it did one key thing more like one of its smaller competitors? It's that plus finer wine when Airlines Confidential returns. Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is sponsored in part by Boyd Group International's 25th Annual International Aviation Forecast Summit this August in Cincinnati. The only aviation forecast event. Register to attend at a reduced rate with a special promo code available only at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Finer wine is next, but first, let's go to the mailbag. Bow in Atlanta writes, Hi, Ben and Seth. Love your show. Longtime listener. I love how much you love data, so wanted to pass along this dashboard that BCG put together and has been making the rounds with airline exec teams, compiles ticketing data from ARC and search data from somewhere else to show how uh, those are starting to recover for each country. He gives the URL here. But if you if you just Google BCG, like Boston Consulting Group, uh, travel recovery dashboard, that'll bring it up. Bow says, disclaimer, I worked for BCG, but wasn't on the team behind this. So I'm proud that my colleagues were behind this tool. Bow, flattery will get you everywhere. So we just uh, read that. On the, I, I did check it out, and it, it does look. It does look useful. A lot of great uh, information out there. Arun in Dallas writes, as a follow-up to last week's question about share repurchases, Forbes had a recent article about the difference between Alaska and American. Basically, they said that Alaska used operating cash to retire debt and get new planes, whereas American basically used most of their cash to repurchase shares and buy planes uh, which ended up increasing their debt. Any thoughts on the differences between the two? Okay, so if you want to find the piece Arun's referencing, the easiest thing is probably to Google Forbes and this headline, which is, I'll read it. It's, what if American Airlines had implemented Alaska Air's capital allocation strategy? And then that piece, in turn, links through to, what else? Another dashboard. 
everybody has these dashboards these days. I'll be honest, there's one part of the math in the dashboard that I'm not entirely sure adds up. I won't get into the weeds on here. But the point that they make is that Alaska spent about half the cash it generated on aircraft acquisitions and the other half to pay off debt. Uh, whereas they say Americans spent about half on aircraft acquisitions and the other half on share repurchases. Uh, so again, just very quickly, we talked about this in the past, but you know that's where a company, as a lot of our listeners know, uh, buys its own shares, which ends up propping up the price, all things being equal, propping up the price of those shares because you're taking shares out of the marketplace. So it's just supply and demand economics. There are fewer, fewer shares out there. Shareholders like that, again, all things being equal. A different story is how people feel in the the COVID world, but they like there being fewer shares out there because now they own something that's that there's less of scarcity. Uh, so the authors here say uh, that difference made all the difference in turn uh, going into the crisis. Now, Ben, what is indisputable is that American is the far larger airline, yet the company is worth only a little more than Alaska, about a five billion dollar market capitalization right now for American. As I look at the numbers versus about four and a half billion for Alaska, which again is a much smaller airline. Do you buy the idea that Americans should have known better and should have done what Alaska did? Should have paid down debt instead of repurchasing shares? Well, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and you can say now would American have been better off had they paid off more of that debt? Of course they would have. But let's think about a couple of things. Alaska is a financially very conservative company. They've been through a number of cycles in the industry, and they've always managed their cash at high levels and always managed in a very conservative manner about keeping cash. On the other hand, Americans been led by Doug Parker, who's we've said a couple of times, who up until we heard the words COVID was saying things like the, you know, the industry's never going to lose money again, and we're never going to furlough people again. And we want the highest paid employees in the industry again, right? And he said things, he said things like that. So if you have the company believing that the structure of the industry and the structure of your airline is such that you're you can't fail, then having a lot of debt isn't necessarily so bad. And so you look at your what what financial people call leverage ratios, you know, how much debt you have compared to something tangible you have. And um right. and um and American knew they were higher than the rest of the industry, but they're the biggest airline in the world. They're making lots of money, billions of dollars from their credit card, lots of money with their alliance with British Airways, huge in Latin America. We just lost Latam, but Okay, we can live with that, right? Yeah. Uh, right? All these things, and so you know, you look at you look at them, and you can say with that size company, the amount of debt they have isn't completely unrealistic. But now you look at a time when no people aren't flying and cash is king, and I am sure that they would love to get in a time machine and say, "Let's put all those shares back in the marketplace." And let's get rid of some of this debt so we can enter this period with a lot less debt. So with hindsight, they would absolutely be better off if they followed Alaska's strategy. I don't think you can be too critical of what American did when you just sort of think of the environment and sort of what they were thinking at the time. Now, maybe you can be critical of what they were thinking. You certainly didn't hear you know, Delta or United or Southwest or anyone saying those kind of things in terms of never lose money again and such. Right. And, and I guess if you want to think of it this way in terms of why in the world would you carry any more debt than you have to, right? So, so it, you know, 
American, yeah, they had all this debt, but they also had, as you said, all these assets, right? They had all these airplanes. I mean, they, they felt like they could have paid down the debt anytime they wanted, and they were just doing more uh, productive things with the money. And for anybody who thinks that that's just crazy, you know, I'm sure there's somebody listening to us, if you just put it kind of in personal finance terms, right? I'm sure there's somebody listening to us who has a quarter million dollar mortgage on their house and also has... I don't know, a quarter million dollars in retirement savings, right? And 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 if you say, well, well, why don't you just take the savings and pay off the mortgage on the house? The the reason, and I realize there are tax implications and all the rest of it, but the reason generally would be, well, because the mortgage on my house is is at this very low interest rate, and and I expect the money invested in this other stuff over the long term to 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 do more for me. You know, that's why somebody would do that. And that, in short, it's not a perfect analogy, but that is why American would would do that, especially thinking, look, I've got all these airplanes, right? And 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 yes, now we have the situation where guess what? Those airplanes uh, aren't worth what we thought they were. And and like you said, you'd you'd, you'd rather have that decision back. But uh, but uh, you know, we we all do things like that in our lives that you know, some of them end up working out and some of them don't. And and, and Americans' approach simply didn't. Uh, well, beginning our initial descent on today's show, it, it's time for fine or whine. Uh, we listen to an actual customer complaint and then we talk about whether the complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint for us. Yes, Seth. This one is from someone who we just know as a first name beginning with the letter E because he only put his complaint in with E. He or she. We don't even know. <laughs> yeah, it's he or she. There's plenty of both, right, with E. Uh-huh. Right? So uh-huh. complaining about Aeromexico, E writes, I traveled to Mexico City from Los Angeles. That's a big route for, for Aeromexico, I'm sure. Yep. When I landed in Mexico, I was given an immigration form in Spanish. I'm not a native speaker and know a little Spanish, but got through it. The flight attendants were not helpful to explain that after immigration stamps to keep the receipt or they will not let you on your return flight home. This was never mentioned to me. On my return flight, I got to the airport early, got through security, and as I boarded the plane, they asked for that receipt. My passport and boarding pass was not good enough for Aeromexico. The woman at the gate smiled and said, go to the immigration office. You have three minutes. Okay, Ben. Now, first of all, this is a useful tip for uh, now. I, I know we have some people who are listening who travel all the time and know this, but even people who have been on kind of a few international flights, trips around the world, it's possible they haven't been to one of these countries that does this, where when you go through immigration, when you enter, there's maybe like a carbon copy kind of thing, and they and they they tuck a piece of paper back in your passport. And they may or may not be very clear about the fact that that little paper, which to you might look like a might look like a receipt <laughs> or, or something not too important, uh, is actually really important, and you need it to get out of the country. And and I even early in my travel days, I I, I have this vague recollection of being in a situation where I, I couldn't immediately find the paper, and like it all worked out. You know, they they ended up saying don't worry about it, but but where I I did even appreciate the importance of that paper. So word to the wise, the paper the immigration officer hands to you or tucks inside your passport matters for anybody who doesn't know that. Uh, That said, uh, this person didn't know that. Again, they're not the only one in the world who's ever been in this situation. who's who's wrong here i I mean okay so i'll give a little couple i'll give a little um culpability to aeromexico for maybe i mean i don't know how strongly they told him keep this i just don't know but i'll say maybe they could have done a better job of that but i think this is mostly a whine 
And I'll tell you why I think it's mostly a lie. Traveling out of the country is a big deal. And I know people don't think of it necessarily as a big deal, especially if you just cross the border into Canada, if you live up north, right, or something like that. Yeah. But when you leave your home country, what you have to represent you is your passport, basically, that you're a member of that country. And different countries have different jurisdictions. And so if you're traveling anywhere, I don't care if it's close to the country like Mexico or Canada, know the laws and know what the immigration laws are required to you. You certainly wouldn't fly to some, you know, m more restrictive kind of place you know, without sort of understanding what visas do I need? What do I have to have? Things like that. And the other thing is, why on earth would you throw away a form that you were given until you're back home? Yeah. And so the reality is, I think this was a really naive flyer who's trying to blame Mexico for the fact that he or she, whichever he is, didn't do the homework they should have done to say, I'm going to Mexico. Here's what, here's how I get out of the country legally and back into the country legally. It's not a tough thing to ask. It's an easy thing to find out. And he should have done that. Yeah. And that said, you know, when I was in that situation, I don't remember thinking that it was the airline's fault or it was the country's fault or it was somebody else's fault. I mean, I just remember feeling stupid for for, for not realizing <laughs> it. And uh, and yeah, ultimately, you know, I think there are some people that that's their first thought is silly me and other people. It's who can I blame? Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on final approach now, that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seatbacks and tray table are in their upright and locked position. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429. Or you can email us, questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Again, questions, plural, at airlines, plural, confidential.com. Airlines Confidential is all one word. Or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Balbanza. Talk to you soon. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.